It's Karen. Welcome to the first episode of our rebranded podcast, the Rational in Portland podcast, formerly Walla Moms podcast. We have a rebrand I'm so excited about. We've changed the name of the show. The podcast title was a bad title, and that's on me. When you're the only one who gets the joke, it's probably not a good joke. Walla Moms name was attracting too many trolls from the far right and the far left, which I should have seen coming. The trolls from the far left were the absolute worst and the most vitriolic, which makes me sad because those are my people. I'm a registered Democrat who's never voted for Republican, but you know the far left. If you don't tow their party line a million percent and fall lockstep in with them, they respond on brand with cancel culture and threats of violence and wanting the Oregon State Bar to take my license away from me. That's right. I'm a practicing lawyer, which is why it's interesting that the right-wing trolls were essentially assuming that I was rioting and throwing Molotov cocktails every night for months on end at the federal courthouse. And that's the courthouse that I and my friends and my colleagues actually practice and work in. So suffice it to say, I was never, ever doing that. So we're engaged in some rebranding here at the podcast, and we are now rational in Portland. I've got a lot of messages from you all searching for Walla Moms on Twitter. You can't find us there anymore, but that means you weren't following us. So follow us on Twitter because all our followers are still with us on the Rational in Portland account. The handle is Rational in PDX. What is hilarious and sad and telling and on brand about this is that the handle Rational in PDX was not taken. We took it. Today we have a really special guest. Her name is Susan. She lives downtown. And I think you're going to find that she's extremely interesting because... She is, she calls herself a forgotten resident of Portland. She says that she has been left behind in the riot zone. It's brought many challenges to her life. And she feels that voices like hers have not been heard. And they, they really haven't. There isn't a lot of attention paid to people who are not intense, that are living downtown in Portland and are not, rich and are not powerful and don't have a lot of networking and and influence that they can use to grab media channels attention. So Susan is a really important Portland voice to hear from and we have her on today. We are with Susan Griffin. Susan lives downtown. She lives in a do you call it a single room occupancy, Susan? No, right now I live in a studio or yeah, a, a small studio. You're in a small studio, but you started downtown yeah. in a single room occupancy. Yeah, I started in an SRO, a single room occupancy. And prior to that, you were living in someone's RV on their property and paying them rent. And despite living on private property and paying rent, the city had designated you homeless. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And then also just for background, so people can understand uh-huh. your context, you're, you are disabled, you were hurt in the mid-80s when you were living in Colorado and you fell after a blizzard, is that right? Yeah. And you yeah. were hurt really bad. Your kneecap went all the way into the back of your leg and you've had some upwards of like 13 surgeries. One was a full reconstruction of your leg. And so yeah. as we're talking right now, I can see you over Zoom and uh, you showed me your leg brace and you're in a wheelchair that you sometimes use and sometimes don't, but a wheelchair is certainly at times necessary for you to get around. Right, right, right. So I think that's really important for our audience to understand your context and where you're coming from. 
And you were right before we pressed record, Susan, you were just telling me that you were inter were you interviewed by KGW? Yeah. During the yeah. riots, because they wanted to talk to people yeah. downtown and get their perspective. Tell me about that. And tell me about this okay. other man that they interviewed that you were talking about okay. previously. This was um, in July, around mid-July of 2020, and KGW had called me after I emailed them and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a story. Well, I was, I was really interested in doing this story because they wanted to talk to downtown residents who were being adversely affected by the riot. And this was like maybe two weeks into the, well, May, June, July, two and a half months into the riot. And if I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I paid attention. I felt like I paid a lot of attention to the media coverage then. I missed this piece, but it seemed like, and, and maybe I missed it and, and all these pieces all together because it seemed to me like there was no interest in what the people downtown were going through, particularly disabled people like yourself who are not wealthy and connected and living in some kind of high rises. Was that your experience? Yeah. Well, not once. Not once and, and since the riots first started has the city of Portland ever personally addressed downtown residents. Not once. They've addressed everything and everyone else, but not the downtown residents. Why, why do you so think anyway, that is? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we were here, we saw firsthand what we witnessed from our viewpoint, which is completely different than what they were witnessing down on the streets below when they were down there protesting, rioting, whatever you want to call it. And when you say your perspective was Obviously, it was different from what they were seeing below, but tell me what, you, what your perspective was and what you were, in fact, seeing. How, how you were able to, to have a different perspective from where you were situated. I mean, for one thing, you well, saw I, more, right? Because you're higher up, so you could see... A, I, live about, I live about 11 stories up. Okay, so you can see a better periphery all around, right? Right. And actually, my building is very dwarfed compared to the buildings that are around me. You know, the rest of the buildings around me are, you know, 20 stories or higher. You know, mine's no taller than 12. So, you know, I felt dwarfed anyway. And I felt really, really dwarfed when the helicopters were overhead hovering for hours on end. Okay. And then I've got angry rioters on the streets below, ranting, chanting, you know, uh, I mean, all I've got, I'm dealing with uh, sirens and LRAD and cops and flash grenades. Um, I mean, it was complete chaos, and I just felt so small and so minute. And, um, you know, I just figured the first week and a half. You know, well, the rides still end here maybe next week. I, I decided to do it two weeks. You know, Ted Wheeler's mother just died. I didn't understand politics at all in Portland. No, I, I was completely oblivious to what the hell was going on. You know, so it was like every single night, it was like, it was just this constant noise from 10 p.m. 
until sometimes 6 a.m. The constant chanting, the constant sirens, the LRAP, the flash grenades, you know, the people yelling. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, a, you know, about three blocks up from the courthouse. And so as the police move them up, you know, they're coming right up my street. So where my bird's eye view is the corner of Broadway and Salmon. And yeah, you were I right in the thick of it. Section very clear, you know. Well, let's go back to this KGW interview. So you, okay. you're for whatever reason, somebody had the good idea to find out what the residents of downtown were experiencing during these riots, and and tell yeah. me about that, and tell me about this the man named Gabriel you were talking about too, who was also interviewed. Okay, I I had sent. Um, KGW, KGW an email and asked them to come and talk to us. And out of the blue, they called me back. I was really surprised. And I would, I wanted to do the story, but I didn't want to go live. I didn't want my face out there because the week prior, I had been outside and confronted riders out for my building. I got shoved to the ground. Oh my gosh. Well, so let's stop and talk about that because that I'm... I can't say I'm surprised, but I, looking at you this right was, now and looking at you with your disability, you're for, just for the listeners, you're a slight woman. You, you appear to be a very small woman. You don't appear young and strong. Well, I, I weigh less than 125 pounds. At the beginning of the riots in May of 2020, I weighed 180 Oh, you did. Do you think you've lost weight because of all the stress? Yes. Oh my goodness. I lost, I lost 50 pounds in six months. Oh my gosh, Susan. It just came off. It's just. Well, so at the time you're bigger, but you're still this disabled woman and you confront, tell me about this. Like what was it that triggered you to confront the rioters? And you, you must've really been upset because it was probably scary. It was nine days, it was nine nights into the riots, and I was exhausted. I hadn't slept, you know. Uh, my PTSD was off the chart. Um, I was sleep deprived, I was hypervigilant, and I was pissed. And so I took my tablet downstairs with me, and that's all I had. And went out in front of my building, and I held my tablet in front of me, and I started filming them, and just going around and screaming, "People live here!" I was begging them to stop. Oh, I'm sorry. Let, let's take a minute. I see that you're get tearing up. It must have been a really terrible memory. disabled we did nothing to deserve this please just stop and of course you know there's four or five hundred people out there a lot and I'm standing out there by myself and I'm screaming and of course you know they're like it, it was just total chaos 
and I, people finally started to hear me and um, one guy came up, I don't know if he lived here or not, if he lives in the building or not, I've never seen him, never seen him since, but he started to chant with me, you know, people live here, you know, this needs to stop. I was just exhausted. I just wanted it to stop, you know. It was like the only way I could think to do it was to go out and try to talk to him, and it just didn't work. And um, What was the response? The response was they went around the corner, and they started fires. They started fires across the street in the newspaper machines and in the garbage cans. And they went around the corner and they pulled all the dumpsters, all the garbage cans out, and they piled everything up and they started it on fire. And this isn't a riot, this is at the beginning of the riots. And so then there's cops down on the other end of the street and I'm screaming, someone call the fire department because the flames are just getting bigger and bigger. I mean, they got, they got 20 feet. You know, it was just incredible. And nobody was doing anything. And the fire department wasn't coming and the police weren't doing anything. I didn't know that they didn't call the fire department again to an active riot zone. I didn't know that. I've had a house fire. I lost everything I owned and I, I damn near died. And that's how you ended up in the RV, right? No, no, no. That's that was a long time ago. Okay. When I lived in Colorado. That was in Colorado. Okay, okay. I lost everything I owned, and I almost died. Wow. You know, um, I was in my mid twenties when that happened. Wow. So you know, I know how destructive fire can be. You know, and they're just like they just walked away, and and I was starting to panic because there's a natural gas line right there too. You know, and, and I mean, I'm not real smart, but I'm not stupid either, you know? And I just saw the flames getting bigger. And then this guy came around the corner in a pickup, just trying to get away from them up there on the main street. And he stopped and pulled out a couple of extinguishers. Okay. And if it wasn't for that good Samaritan, I don't know what would have happened with that fire. So was that, when you say you don't know what would have happened, I mean, that was near your building. It was obviously near you. It was near potentially hundreds, if not thousands of people. And you're saying it could have set off, you know that there's a natural gas line right there and it could have set, could have exploded. Well, anything's possible, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm no genius, but natural gas is explosive, right? I think it sounds really scary. It sounds like but, a really know, scary these, situation. These arsons that they started, you know, it's no big deal. You know? Oh, it, it, it yeah, it became day rigueur. It was just another night. Yeah, and so anyways, like I come back up around the corner and, um, and someone shoved me. Someone shoved me to the ground. One of the demonstrators? Yeah. Just unprovoked? Just came up and shoved you? They were tired of hearing me, I think, yeah. So they had... 
you think that they had probably identified you oh, as wait, the person. Wait, 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 wait. Let me back, let me backtrack for a minute. Let me backtrack for a minute. The fires happened that night. I wasn't shoved that night. I was, I was shoved the second time I went out, the second and last time I went out in front of them. Tell me about that time. Well, that time was another time when I was exhausted and fed up and they were up on Maine or up around the corner. And I went up there and, you know, the cops were there and, you know, doing nothing because they'd been ordered to stand down. Um, and, you know, they were over on the other side of the street and they're screaming at the cops. And, you know, it's like... It's, I was just so over it, and I sat, I stood there, and I filmed it for a couple of minutes, and I, I think as I turned around, what I said was fucking cowards, and I had a group of about eight BLM members, or Black Lives Matter, follow me, and um, I got up near my door and they were still behind me and I thought, well, I don't want to go into the apartment building. The door doesn't shut real quick. So I figured I'd just go, maybe go around the block and maybe whatever, go back to what they were doing before. And just so we could imagine this in our minds and because I'm sure some listeners are wondering, was was this the, no, I, I think you're very clear. I just, I'm trying to get a picture in my mind. Were the people that were following you, were they the ones in the black hoodies? Those people, yeah, and, they, and they were black. Four of them were women, and three were men. And they were all black people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is rare yeah. in Portland, even at the riots. It's rare yeah. to find so, yeah, any people of color, even though they're ostensibly rioting for people of color. But anyway, these people right. of color who these these were people of color who happened to follow you after you said cowards. Right. right. So I walked past my doorway. And I got up to the corner, and that's when they cornered me, and they said, what'd you call us as you walked away? Oh, that's scary. Yeah, it did. It horrified me. And I said, I called you a fucking coward. Well, how can you call us a coward? I mean, one of the girls was so big. I mean, she was much taller than me. Much taller than me. Very, very intimidating. And like, in my face. You know, she was screaming at me and I just wouldn't back down because I knew if I turned around and walked away, I probably would have had the shit kicked out. I believe that. Had I just turned around to walk away, I don't think it would have worked out that well. So, um, I just wouldn't back down. And I said, look, you know, y'all walk around and you're all, you know, taunting the police. I said, you're walking around in helmets, you're in riot gear, you know, you claim you're protesting, it's one o'clock, two o'clock, whatever time it was in the morning. I said, you're nothing but cowards fighting a coward's fight. And the next thing I knew, she just shoved me. And I went back, and when I went back, my hip hit the curve. Oh, I wow. didn't my brace on that night. And that was on your disabled leg? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And as soon as I went down, I got right back up. Because I thought if I stayed down, I thought that they were going to start stomping me or kicking me. But they didn't. 
I stood right back up and then they just kind of started laughing and taunting and then they turned around and, and they walked up the street, you know, whatever. That must have been so, so scary. Anyway, that happened. Well, I'm relieved that you're here to tell us about it. And that was the last time you went out to confront them because you were probably worried about your personal safety. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll never go back out if they're out there. I won't. I'm too scared now. Yeah, well, especially with how small you are now. I mean, I'm afraid yeah. of what would happen to you. Really afraid. It's really hard, though. You know, it's really hard. I have my own riot gear, is what I call it. I invested in a bullhorn, and I scream right back at him. Oh, from your window? Yeah. What? From your window? Yeah. Yeah. I taunt them. Do you, I scream at him. Do you feel yeah. like that's because... Well, I don't know. What... what what do you think you're is does does it help you personally feel like you're doing something I mean what do you think because you I'm sure you don't believe that when they hear your bullhorn they're gonna shut up and go home so does it make does it make you just feel like okay at least I'm doing something like somebody's doing something the police aren't gonna come nobody's gonna stop this but at least I'm speaking back friends walked out of my life the summer of 2020 every single one of them why is that because they all thought that I was lying about what was happening in Portland Oregon my family walked out so these are all people who don't live in Portland who live elsewhere in the country and you would speak right. to them and you would tell them your personal experiences of what was going on and why these riots were not good things. This was not, this was not in any way a civil rights demonstration or something to be lauded. And they were mad at, at that response, probably. They were. You know, um, they thought that I no longer supported Black Lives Matter or that I was supporting what happened to George Floyd, you know. Or that you were racist um, or... They became angry with me because I don't agree with the, the ACAB. I don't agree that all cops are bastards. You know? I don't agree with this totally dismantling this department. I just, I don't agree with what's going on. And so and did you really lose all your friends from around the country after 2020 or is it more like those relationships are damaged and may never be prepared repaired or are you just not talk there these people are not talking to you anymore well um several of them just don't talk to me just won't correspond well and like of the people who just stopped corresponding can do you have any memory of what your last communication was i mean were they explicit about cutting you off in Dallas that I've known for 20, 22 years. She's a Democrat and um, 
I'm a Democrat. I'm a registered lifelong Democrat. I've always voted Democrat. Well, I'm assuming that you believe in racial justice and that you believe that, that black people should not be gunned down by the police indiscriminately, that that would be a closely held tenant that you've believed for a very long time. Of course. I believe in, you know, of course, yeah. But my friend Patty, the last thing that she said to me was, Susan, you were stealing my hope. This was in August, or July, September, November. So four months before the election, she told me, you're stealing my hope. Because I would call her and I would talk to her and I would tell her what was going on and she didn't believe me. And, but by this time, I felt hopeless. By this time, I could see that these weren't going to end. Why do you think she didn't believe you? Because it didn't fit her preconceived narrative about how these riots were peaceful protests and the next, the the civil rights movement of, of 2020? Or, or do you think it's, what, what was it? I mean, why would she, why would she disbelieve her friend or think that you were making things up? She was tired of Donald Trump. You know, like, like everyone else that I knew, like me, I, you know, I'm not a Trump fan. I never was. I never liked Trump long before he was president. And so, you know, by, by August, you know, of 2020, most people are feeling pretty hopeless. We're, all, we're, we're in COVID, you know, we're locked down. We don't know what's going on. We're scared. Trump had lied to us about it. I mean, all of that. So, you know, and then I was so stressed out, you know, and I live here by myself, and so all my Democrat friends were talking to me. Now, did they? Did your Democrat friends from Oregon believe you? I have a few that I won. I question. They say that they did, but I don't know. I don't think they truly understood. You know, because I found just personally, people. I, I've had the same experience. And I found that, you know, my neighborhood is not in downtown, but I work downtown and I was downtown for most days that summer and into the evenings. And I would try to get out, you know, before it really got out of hand. Sometimes I, I was able to, and sometimes I was stuck for a while and it was tough to get out, but, but it was... And I, I didn't go through what you went through because I didn't live down there. But I, I will say it was frightening. It was scary. I didn't feel safe. It felt wrong and lawless and like the walking dead or something. It felt apocalyptic. And especially as a woman, and especially when I was walking alone or, or doing an, even doing an errand alone in the middle of the day, you know, I'd watch a guy beat the shit out of another guy with a skateboard, just in broad daylight, out in front of a bank. 
um, right by the, it was right by the justice center. I mean, just, you know, places that you, anybody, I don't care if you're a woman, I don't care if you're disabled. I don't, you know, a, a child, you should be able to walk peacefully in your city, particularly in the middle of broad daylight in your downtown. And I, I, you know, I, I've heard the same kind of stuff that you have. I heard, I heard, I felt when I would recount what happened, I felt people disbelieving me. And when I would say things like downtown's not safe, they'd kind of narrow their eyebrows and lean in closer and go, well, what do you mean it's not safe? You know, yeah. with this clear implication of you're, you're so full of shit or you're just yeah. a racist. You just, you just don't, you, you just think, you know, you don't, you don't believe in justice for black people or you're just pro cop or, I mean, they, and it's so weird because these were just like you, these were democratic friends that I had had struggle sessions with privately about how much we both hated Trump, about how much we both, you know, I mean, going all the way back decades about how we hated the Bushes for Christ's sake. And now they're, they're questioning my my personal experience downtown, but, but they weren't downtown. And I wonder, it makes me wonder if your Democrat friends, my guess is they weren't living near you downtown in the middle of all this. And that's why they were questioning you because if they were, they, you and you could both look at each other and look at each other in the eyes and go, isn't this unbelievable? This is so scary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all I did was go to sleep the night of May 29th. I know. Like everyone else in Portland. I know. You know, and I woke up, I got woke up at 12, 14 a.m. to the first flash grenade. And I jumped out of bed. I had no idea what happened. And I can remember seeing the that was flash probably so scary. of the explosion uh, reflect off the windows. And then I started hearing them again and again. Boom. 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 And it was one after another. And I was like, I mean, it scared me. I had no idea what was going on. I turned the TV on and I got my binoculars out and I looked towards the Pioneer Square and I could see flames. I could see smoke. I could see people going in and out of the stores up and down Broadway. And I was like, holy shit. And I was posting on Facebook and I was posting this is not who we are. And what kind of responses were you getting? It's like, I understand that people are angry over what happened to George Floyd, but this is not who we are. This can only be allowed to happen once. And you know, I had one friend respond, and what he told me, and he was back in Louisiana, I believe, and what he told me is, Susan, that's exactly who Portland is. And he said, and you'd be smart to get the hell out now. And do you feel that way today? I mean, I feel that way now. I wish I would have listened to him. Yeah. It, well, we didn't want to believe it. You know, I didn't no. either. I didn't either. I never saw this side of Portland. I never saw it coming. Because you came here in what, 2005? Yeah, the very first time I came, yeah. But you did see... Because wasn't there a riot after Trump was elected? I know there was some peaceful, there was like the pussy hat march, which was totally different. It was like a women's march. It was super peaceful and very cool. But I seem to remember that there was also a, 
that there was a, a riot, like a violent riot where glass was broken oh, and the SWAT team was out. And Those riots after Trump was elected, if I remember, lasted seven, eight, nine days, something like that. Right, but and not months and months. Very, very exhausted then, too. Yeah. And that's why after like a week and a half, I thought, well, this will stop. This will right, stop. Right, know? right, right. So I'd been through riots before, but yeah, I, yeah, I was in a different part of town. Oh, you were? Town. Yeah. Well, it's Not different when you're right in the middle there. of it. It's really different when you're right, right in the middle of it. I was down first in Broadway and, uh, or not Broadway, but um, Burnside and first. Yeah. Yeah, that was further away from where it was yeah. g- going on. But so yeah, it was, it was yeah. pretty loud and rowdy down there. Yeah. So you had seen riots in Portland before, but you hadn't seen them go on night after night for months at a time. So you probably assumed, okay, in a week or so, this will be over and I can get back to bed. Yeah. Yeah, initially, yeah. Now, I, I got to get back to, I know I keep, I keep dragging you around, of course. Let's get back to the KGW um, interview because okay. I think that's so interesting. I think it's wonderful that they reach back out to you. Yeah, I was really surprised. Okay, so back to that real quick is... Um, I agreed to do the story if they just used my voice, and that was fine. So there's another guy, his name's Gabriel Johnson, um, and he's a black gentleman. He lives downtown, and I don't know the full story about this, but he took a flag down to the courthouse one day during the riots and was taunted, harassed, threatened, and told to leave. Essentially. What flag did he take? The United States flag. And he was he was ta- a black man was he was taunted and told to leave. Yes. Why? Because he had a U.S. flag. I'm assuming so. Do you think he I'm was he was probably saying things like, you know, stop this or things that were similar to you like we he live pro- here. I would assume I would assume he probably was. Going down there to ask him and talk to him, mainly. Yeah. You know. And they were mad that he wasn't. Retired Marine. And they were mad that he wasn't on their side. Apparently. Anyway, he's the founder of a group on Facebook called the Coalition to Save Portland. I'm sure they won't mind using their name. I don't know. But anyway. And do you support them and their mission? The Coalition? Yes. Uh, yeah. I don't go to the group very much anymore because I was being stalked there. Oh, that's scary. Yeah, so I quit going there for a while. I've been back for a while. I stumble in there once in a while and look at the posts. But... So did you, prior to the KGW interview, did you already know him from around the neighborhood? No, I'd never seen him before. But, you know, after the after this interview, you know, like, they asked me my experience then. I had like, I don't know, two minutes or something where I spoke and, you know, they used what they wanted. They edited what they wanted. And I was, I was very pleased. And then they interviewed him. He was on camera, on his phone or whatever. And um, I thought it was a really good interview, you know. That's the only time, though, that anybody even addressed us as, as residents downtown who were being adversely affected. Do you you attribute your weight loss to the stress from the riots? Definitely. 
Yes. That's a significant amount of weight to lose in a small period of time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I quit eating. You know, I had no appetite. I still don't. I still have a difficult time eating. I get really nauseated. Um, sometimes, you know, I'll vomit right eat. Wow. So it's really hard to cook. It's really hard to eat. Um, and I'm still really stressed all the time because I know that at any moment that it can start again. At, at any moment, they can get pissed off about anything and apparently go wherever they want and, you know, riot. You know, October was the last one downtown, and they know who started that, who organized that. They know who was involved and was anything done. No. So what, what I've learned is that at any moment, at any time, anything can happen. And so I never feel safe. I'm always on the lookout. I'm always hypervigilant. If I hear a bottle break in the street, I'm constantly looking because I'm wondering if it's someone throwing Molotovs again. They were out here during the heat wave, during the heat wave with 116 degree temperatures. So that would have been June of June of last year, 2021. Mm -hmm, June, yeah, of 2021, and they were throwing Molotovs out across the street. And it's so interesting because they just start doing it. And sometimes when I'm downtown and they're doing it, I'll hear people, I'll see people look at their phones because they think, what's the, there's a purpose to this. What's happening now? You know, did, did another black person get killed by the cops? Did, is somebody pissed off about something? They're all looking at their phones. And then sometimes I'll look up, I don't know if you've had this experience, and they'll come, we'll all kind of turn to each other and go, do you know what this one's about? You know, because the first question is, well, I mean, in your mind, as somebody who frequents downtown or for you who lives downtown, you're thinking, you're wondering how, how pissed they are, what the, the alleged facts are that they're relying on to, to fuel their riot. And you're also, a lot of it's, you're wondering like, how, how mad are they? What, what kind of weapons will be used and how long is this going to continue so that I know when I can come back to work or go back to sleep or, I mean, it, you know, obviously it's completely unpredictable now. As you've pointed out, it could be for anything or nothing and it could go on for months or it, maybe it'll end that night, but you have no certainty of that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nobody right. in charge saying that they're going to put a stop to it. Right. And then we have, there's, I mean, no, no police presence. I've tried to call for help. Tell me about that. Tell me about that. Fine example is this. In October. So this was October 2021. 2021. Yeah. I was very despondent. I had had a really hard day. I had a lot of really hard days. I usually cry once a day at mm. least. Um, I have, I usually have really hard days. When did the crying start? And what do you attribute that to? You know, the crying every single day started the day that I heard myself say out loud, 
September of 2020, when I heard myself say out loud that, yeah, damn, Susan, the last four months of your life have been harder than the first four months after Nicole died. Uh, can you Nicole, tell us who Nicole is? Nicole was my daughter. Oh, I'm so sorry. She died at six weeks. Oh, my gosh. Sudden into death syndrome. Oh, wow, Susan. She would turn 40 years old this March. Oh, so painful. So, all of my life, I walked through my life and I walked through that experience. I stumbled very, I mean, I stumbled a lot. It wasn't graceful. I didn't handle that gracefully. But I worked through it. And I believe that would be the hardest thing I'd ever go through until I heard myself say that out loud. And today I can say the last year and a half of my life has been harder than the first year and a half after she died. It just gets harder. And what what is it? Is it is it the combination of I mean, obviously sleeplessness will make you It'll make you crazy. I mean, I, I think it's well documented and there's a fair amount of scientific data on the about the idea that if you don't have sleep, you can get really sick. I mean, is it kind of the combination of that and, and feeling unsafe? Well, I, I, I think more than that, it's, it's all the homicides happening yeah. in Portland. You know, because they really picked up last July. They really July did. They really did. You know, Broke all the records. All, all I could think of were all these mothers having to bury their children and all these kids having to grow up without a parent. And it made me angry. And it made me angrier and angrier because these people, these victims, these true victims that are losing their lives weren't being addressed. And I know after 40 years of not having my daughter, it's a life sentence of grief. That grief doesn't go away. It's not like grieving the death of my grandmother that I was able to walk through and deal with and let go of and remember the good times. You know, the loss of a child is completely different because you lose your soul, you lose your future, you lose your dreams. Well, it's so unnatural. Not only your dreams, but the dreams you had for your child. Everything's gone. And that's how I feel what Portland's done to me is taken everything from me. Now, you've also been adversely, well, let's go back to the homicides for a minute. Are you hearing an increase of gunshots since the summer of 2020? Are you hearing that around you where, where you are situated downtown? I hear gunshots, or what I'm pretty sure are gunshots every night. And that's a new pretty phenomenon. That's a new yeah. phenomenon since 2020, right? More so since... Um, I'd say more so in the last nine months, 
maybe. Um, and maybe that's because more homicides were starting to happen around me, around where I live. And so I was more like keen into them. I, I don't really, I don't really know. And are but, you, you know, seeing any kind of police presence around you whatsoever? Not very, not very often. Not very often. And no. you've also been adversely impacted by the homelessness and drug crisis downtown. Well, yeah. I mean, let's get into that. Tell me, I'm, what, after you got downtown, when did you start noticing the homeless encampments and the, the drug psychosis getting out of control? Well, no, up in my area, it was getting out of control. I can't, I can't, I can't really put it, I can't really remember. Um, I can't really put a time on it. But um, I call Mayor Wheeler's office constantly. I bet I've called his office 200 times. I kid you not. Do they ever call back? No. Uh -huh. Is no. it is it a recording every time? And, and and every time I leave my name and I leave my number and I just stay the message. What do you what do you say? Like what do you, are you, are you just reporting what you see, or is it are you calling about? I report what I see, and I tell him constantly that the reason I call him and leave him a voicemail is because I'm unable to call and get the help that I need. And I need to rant at somebody because there's nobody for me to call at two or three in the morning when I've got race cars going up the street that sound like they're shooting machine guns at each other. There's no one I can call. Like what I was going to say a few minutes ago about October when I needed help. I needed help. I was sitting here. I was, I was very honestly suicidal. Hmm. I was sitting here with a web page up telling me how much medication to mix with alcohol. Oh, geez. That's how close I was. That's the closest I've been to attempting to take my life in a long time. Excuse my language. No, it's okay. And so instead what I did was I kept hearing my old therapist tell me, Susan, God hasn't brought you this far to drop you on your ass. And whenever you need help, all you have to do is call, and you're going to get the help you need. So who do I call? 911. Well, they're only taking calls if it's like um, someone being injured or um, a homicide. Right. There's like a recording, isn't there? When you call 911, yes. there's a recording that says... So they tell you, hang up, call the non-emergency number. I called the non-emergency number three times and a two night period, three different calls. And between all three calls, I was on hold over two hours. Oh my and God. I never even got an answer. But that second night is when I was sitting here with a bottle of booze and a bottle of pills, just ready to say, fuck this, I'm done. And I couldn't even get an answer let alone a response. And I know that summer of 2020, when the riots first started, I did call 911 one night. 
and a 911 operator took time out for me during the riots to talk me down because I was seriously thinking about just jumping out the window oh, that yes. night. You know, that's when I was still confused and I didn't know what was going on and I was tired and I just wanted to sleep. But that 911 operator took, I think it was a four minute conversation, four minutes with me and just talked me down and just told me, there's someone out here who cares. Oh, that's really unusual and really compassionate. They've done more for me than the city of Portland. The PPB did. You know, the, the city of Portland doxed me. Tell me about that. I sent them an email, the mayor and all the commissioners, and I told them, look, I gave them a little bit of my history. Of course, they know who I am. And I told them that they were all listed on a suicide note, and they are. I've got a suicide note in my dressing room and my desk door. And I figure if I'm ever pushed to that point, I'm gonna put it on my desk. And that way, when they find me, they can read this, and their names are listed on it, and why. What, when you say, and why, what's the reason articulated in the note? Because I'm just a little old lady who went to sleep and got woke up to violence writing. I did nothing to put myself in this position. I know I need some mental health care. I know I need some good mental health care and I'm not going to get it all on couch. The crisis line hung up on me last summer during the riot. Oh my God. So what good, what good are they going to do if I call them back? They hung up on me. What about this old therapist? Are you able to get in touch with that person and get a referral for somebody local? Oh, no, no, no. Carolyn, she's probably not even in. Um, she probably doesn't do her counseling. Well, that's too bad. She's probably retired by now. And so when you, have, have you, I'm assuming, because you seem like a pretty capable person, have you, since you've moved to Portland, have you reached out to the county or the health insurance plan to try to get some some mental health assistance? I have insurance. I have Medicare and I have my insurance. I don't want, I don't trust Multnomah County. I don't trust anything about Multnomah County. I, I wonder if you, I wonder what would happen if you called your insurance and asked for a referral. Have you tried that? You know, I did. And um, they started sending me referrals on my phone. Uh huh. And my phone just kept going beep, 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 because it was like one after another, and it was like different texts, and I got really, really overwhelmed. Yeah, it was too overwhelming. And I couldn't deal with it. And I was trying to read, you know, these. I was trying to read on my phone, and yeah, it was, it was way too overwhelming. And 
I had asked him for people outside of Multnomah County and like there were Multnomah County therapists on there and it wasn't helpful. Right. When you I, say, I checked, tell me, go ahead. My, what? I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say, I checked myself into a hospital. Oh my gosh. To get help. And that was a disaster. Tell me about that. I checked myself over into Good Sam. And because I had been there once before, about maybe nine years ago or something, I went in there for some depression and stuff. Did they help you then? Yeah, they they treated me real good back then. But what happened this time, because of COVID and all that, I suppose, was they took me through these doors and they put me in this room that looked like a jail cell. And it had a bed in there with 12-point restraints on it. Oh, jeez. And it had a TV up up near the ceiling that was covered by plastic. And then the clock that was covered, the, the analog clock that was covered with a wire. I mean, it was like... And it was like maybe, oh, maybe as big as my room here, maybe 10 by 10, or maybe yeah, about 10 by 10. Maybe it wasn't very big. And the only, I mean, the only thing to do was sit, um, sit there on that, on that bed with 12 quart restraints. And I was really freaked out anyway, but they left me there for about a day and a half. And then they shipped me over to um, this other place. I can't remember the name of it. I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, they shipped me over there and I checked in over there and I was like, cool, now I'll finally get some help. I was hoping to maybe get back on some medication or maybe get something to help with the anxiety or the sleep or whatever. You know, just get some help. And I was in the in the patient's lobby and we were all chit-chatting like, like you do when you're in a crazy house, right? Just chit-chatting and, oh, what brought you in here? You know, and I was just kind of talking a little bit about the riots and how tired I was and how pissed off I was. And, um, a little bit later that night, this guy came up and walked behind me and did this with his hands. But he's, like, like strangling you? No, just like you know, oh, okay. squeezing my shoulders yeah. down my shoulders. I see. Like in the muscles? Yeah. Like to get your attention? Yeah. I could feel the, his breath in my ear, and he said, If I were you, I would. I'm sorry, you cut out. I would just write at the really good part. Can you say that again? He said, If I were you. He said, He said, If I were you, I wouldn't talk about the fucking riots while you were here. Wow. And so I didn't even look behind me. Oh, that must have been so scary. And that was another patient? Yeah. And so I just let him walk away. I didn't even look behind me. I didn't even want to know who it was. And I waited about. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I went up to the desk and I told him, get my paperwork ready. I'm going to check out the hall. And is that why, when you say, I don't trust Multnomah County, I don't want to use Multnomah County, is that is that why? Yeah. Yeah, that and the crisis line hung up on me. And then just this last week or week and a half ago, Cascadia Behavioral Health hung up on me. Oh, no. What was, the, what, what, why do you think they did that? 
Well, you know, someone down at City Hall apparently gave my personal information to the crisis line. Oh, jeez. And the crisis line called me out of the blue and said, we understand you might need some help. Okay. Well, that's nice. Well, I was pissed. Sure. Because nobody sent me an email. Nobody left me a voice. It doesn't seem benevolent. Nobody sent me a text saying, look, we got your email. We hear what you're saying. We're worried about you. We care about you. We'd like you to go talk to these people. No informal introduction whatsoever. Just give my fucking name to someone that I have no idea who they are. The number comes in blocked. How do I know that it's the crisis line? You were ambushed. Yeah, and you don't know how to verify it. I don't trust these people anyway, you know? So... Of course I was mad. I didn't I didn't call them back immediately. I sent Ted Wheeler another email, told him I felt like I got doxxed and it pissed me off. Then I waited a few days and I got angrier and so I went to call the lady back. Well, she was going into a meeting and the guy on the other end, you know, said said something like, Oh, let's say you're gonna have to play some more phone tag and I said, No, 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 no. I didn't call her. She can call me back. You tell her this is her last chance. I'm not going to play phone tag with someone that called me, and I don't even know who this is or why they called. You know what I mean? And he scoffed at me. And I thought, okay, that's fine. Because when I told him, you know, to tell her this is her last chance to call me, he scoffed. So I didn't hear back from her. It went from the crisis line to some other program came and visited me, the Portland, Portland Respond, I believe. They contacted me, wanted to come and talk to me, and I thought, well, that's really nice. So I had them, I, three of them came into my home. I talked very openly, very honestly with them. I told them what's going on with me. I told them what I, what I think I need. And, you know, I'm under the kind of under the assumption that maybe they're being the middleman between the city and me. You know what I mean? Because I really didn't understand who they were. Now, granted, they did give me, one of them did give me a business card, but no one's name. Okay, so it went from them to Cascadia contacting me. And all this time, I'm to asking them, who gave you guys my name and number? I deserve to know that. I believe I do. Someone at City Hall gave them my number. I'm the client here. I deserve to know that. I, I, that's how I feel. Well, they're covering for the city, telling me it's confidentiality. They can't tell me. But I'm the client. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that makes sense to anyone else, but that just pisses me off. Yeah, that's understandable. Someone should be able to tell me, someone should be able to step up and say, look, it was my office. But nobody does. So that pissed me off. And so when I was on the phone with Cascadia, I made sure to tell them that it pissed me off. And yeah, they hung up on me. Wow. So they couldn't even deal with my anger. How do we get you out of here, Susan? How do we get you out of Portland? 
I don't think anyone will rent to me. And I don't know that we're going to want to put this part in. Okay. Okay. But I'll talk to you about it. Okay. Yeah, we don't have to talk about it um, while we're recording, but... So you, you sort of feel trapped and you feel like you have no way out. Uh, yeah. I feel like my back's been pushed up to the wall since the very beginning. I don't have finances to just up and move. You know, Ted Wheeler had the shit scared out of him at his place, didn't he? So, so much so, he was able to pack it up the same week and go find a house and move. Yeah. And all this time... And even before that happened, he's been aware that there are residents like me and my neighbors who are stuck here in the middle of this life. Do you have any friends or family that you feel, you know, not forever, but just temporarily that you could... I mean, this is going to sound dramatic, but I, I think based on what you've told it, told me, it's it's almost an understatement. You could sort of, if you will, take sanctuary with or shelter in place with or, or just get out, get your stuff, get out of Portland and and ha- get or just house with them temporary, really anywhere temporarily. I, you know, I, I know where I want, I want to leave Oregon. And I want to go to a town called Sulphur Springs, Texas. A friend of mine from the Coalition to Save Portland left Portland and moved down there a while back. And I've, I mean, I've checked the city out. It's not a large city. It's about six or 7,000. Rent is, you know, $503 for a nice one-bedroom studio. That would be amazing. 520 for a one-bedroom. I mean, there's good recovery there. You know, I'm sure I could get some good mental health care there. I lived in Texas before. I got really good care there. It's not very, very far from Dallas. You know, it's a clean city. There's no homeless there. They don't allow it there. There's there's law enforcement there. People appreciate the law. Tom's in his 70s. And he's very happy. He said, Susan, he said, once I got settled, he said, the only drawback is heat. And then I understand Texas heat. I live down there, you know. But it's a really nice town. That's where I want to go. But it's the finances that keep me locked. There's just no way I can come up with, you know, the money that it would take to get what, what few possessions I would want to take there and then get me there, get my cat there. You know, I'm willing to walk away from pretty much everything I own. Not everything, but pretty much everything I own to escape. Do you think Tom or another friend would be willing to get you and drive you? Tom already said that he would pick me up from the airport. Well, that's amazing. From from Love Field in Dallas, which is right by where I used to live. Love Field is right by where I used to live in Texas. In wow, Dallas. okay. So it's more um, about scraping together. 
I, I wonder, you know, just sort of bit by bit, putting away, even if it's a dollar here, a dollar there, for a plane ticket for, for you and the cat. And maybe you sell, I, I know you want to bring possessions that you may or may not be able to take on a plane or you may or may, or may not be able to ship. Maybe, maybe you sell them. I don't know. Well, you know, I've considered selling some stuff. And, you know, before the riots, I didn't have a problem bringing a stranger into my apartment to show them something. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's unsafe now. I didn't now. mind having, you know, someone come up here. I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of people, you know? Whereas now you just, there's just no, no you're right. Trust. Yeah, you're right. And I've got some really nice things that I can sell. I could probably make, I don't know, four or $500. I wonder if you just advertised those things on a safe Facebook group or, a, you know, sent out an email to a group of friends with some photos that you trust. Because um, I really, I'd like to see you get out of here. I mean, well, we need I'm people not- like you, but this is clearly... You can't stay here. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm convinced of it. Really, you know, it's get, I'm afraid it's getting really dangerous for me because I don't keep my mouth shut. I think it is getting dangerous for you. I'm not going to, I can't, I can't back down. I can't. I've been in this fight since the very first night. And my fight's always been just address us. Just help those of us that want help. There's only one other neighbor I have that wants the help out of here. Only two of us. And we both contact their offices. And they just blow us off. You know, it's like... I thought about starting GoFundMe. Tell us your Twitter handle. Tell us your Twitter handle. Um, one smoking hot mess... You lit it, you smoke it. You know? Joanne's suing the police for $5 million. Like she has Joanne Hardesty, so Portland Commissioner. Much. Yeah, right. Because her, allegedly, because her information was leaked to the press. Yeah. And. Well, she neglects. I'm sorry, what? While she neglects the city that she's supposed to work for. Oh, you have. Tell me about that. Well, the first time was in October of 2020. I managed to just magically, luckily, get through to a human being. Oh, wow. I called her office. So I ran it and raged at them. And of course, they gaslit me. But like I said back then in early, well, that in 2020, that period, I really didn't have a clear idea of everything that was going on. So June of this year, I called down there just for the hell of it. I was going to leave a voicemail, and they answered. Had about a 16-minute conversation um, where her, whoever answered the phone in her office, for her office, gaslit me and, you know, kept insisting that what happened last summer, you know, they were protests and that they weren't riots and, you know, trying to explain to me like I was fooled that like I didn't understand about what happened to George Floyd, 
I mean, it was just ridiculous. And, you know, at one point I just told her, I said, you know, Hardesty's not going to walk away unscathed from this. And immediately she took that to be a threat. And so, you know, as soon as she started to get real defensive, I turned my webcam on and I just started to film the last half of that conversation. Yes, you told me you did that. And I I said her straight immediately. I said, no, 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 no. This is not a threat. I said, everyone's lies and corruption comes out eventually. I said, look at Trump. I said, his are all going to come out. I said, Trump will be exposed once he's out of office. I said, he's not going to walk away unscathed from what he's done either. And I remind him of that. You know, I remind them that I'm this angry old woman out here who's just begged you for help and they do nothing. Well, you're one of their constituents. Ostensibly, you're somebody that they're working for. Yeah. Personally, I didn't vote for Joanne Harsty. Doesn't matter. She still works for you. You're a citizen right. of her city. She's but the I city am, commissioner. I did vote for, I did vote for Ted Reed. I did vote for... Um, well, you Ronald didn't have much of a choice. Well, right, right. It was him or that but, wackadoo Sarah Yan around. Right. But, you know, it's like, I've always been a loyal Democrat, is, is what I'm trying to say. Right. I've always been I've always been loyal to the party. And so to be so horribly betrayed, for them to be aware that we're here and that we're suffering, and for them to traipse around like they do, like they've done absolutely nothing wrong, making themselves look good, knowing that we're here, it, it's appalling. I've watched my elderly neighbors, I mean, just spiral down in all of this. I've watched some of my elderly neighbors slip back into their old addictions. You know, like back in the day when they shot heroin, back in the 60s, you know. I mean, I've seen some of my neighbors spiral. And they're actually shooting heroin again. Or smoking meth or something, yeah. Wow, that's terrible. Dropping hits of acid, drinking much a lot more than what they used to. And you know this because they're doing it in public, or they're telling you, or both. They tell me, or I see it, or I can smell the alcohol. And do they talk to you about what has driven them back into these addictions? No. But you're surmising that it's it's the total and utter collapse of the city and the lack of any kind of support for anybody well, yeah. in your situation or yeah. in your building. Yeah, in, in my building, they offer us no security. It's been a flat-out no since the very beginning. As a matter of fact, on the front page of my lease, very middle, it states that they are not responsible for the tenant's safety during civil unrest. Oh, my gosh. Now, I... Now, I probably read that when I signed the lease. I probably read that, but thinking, well, I've been through 10 days of rioting over there. I can get through that. Yeah, that was the Trump riot. I can deal with that. Yeah. But no one ever said that we'd have over 150 consecutive nights plus have the police force cut. You know, we had a question um, from... 
Suze Lopez at S-U-Z-L-O-P-E-Z on Twitter. And her handle is Golden Retrievers are my favorite dog. And she asks, Susan and other residents went four months of minimal sleep due to the late night, in parentheses, 11 p.m. to 4 to 5 a.m. rioting. Sound really amplifies downtown. Other residents downtown told me they had to get a sleeping pill prescription in order to sleep. Is there any legal action they could take? And I, you know, I'm not, I don't have a legal relationship with, with you, obviously, Susan, I'm not your attorney. And, and with the audience, I would recommend that anybody who has this question, see if you can establish a relationship with a lawyer, but just taking my lawyer client relationship hat off and speaking off the cuff here, I, I would say in my, my opinion that the people that I would sue would be the rioters, but these are, they're losers. I mean, unfortunately the rioters are not orthopedic surgeons, so you can't bleed a turnip. Sue them for what, $2? They probably don't even have that. I mean, you could sue the police, but they were told to stand down. You could sue the city officials for telling the police to stand down. Um, but again, for, I mean, in Oregon, we've got this weird law that uh, my understanding of it is you have to have a physical injury, like a bruise or a wound or... It's, it's not enough to sue if you watch a car crash happen. You have to have some blood on you or you ha- the car has to have touched you and it's called physical impact rule. And so I think it would be, I just think it would be incredibly difficult to file a lawsuit like that as far as legal action. I mean, that's what's so, so horrifying and tragic about this situation is that this situation has been pushed upon and it's frankly a form of oppression that people in your situation Susan that are living downtown are under and people like you are trapped and and people like your neighbors are trapped they're older these are impecunious people that don't have the resources that they need to to buy a, a plane ticket to a major airport let alone to that I mean there's no there's you just described to us there there there's no one to call let alone to just call to talk you down off of a literal ledge you know and I've told the mayor you know one of these days I could get pissed off enough and I have a dissociative disorder that's part of my mental illness I, I have mental illness on top of all of this PTSD depression anxiety and a dissociative disorder. And did that stem from the death of your daughter, or when did that begin? Some of that stems from childhood stuff. I'm sorry. Some of it from my daughter. So this is really old. Yeah. But, you know, all of that was under control and had been for years. How were you able to keep it under control? How were you able to keep it under control? Do you have medication? Did you have... I had been on medication. I wasn't on it anymore, but I had a source of support. Um, what was your support? I was, I was going to um, some AA meetings. 
things. Oh, and those shut down with COVID, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And then, you know, lost track of people. I mean, oh, no. Yeah, and is, was a lot of that because of COVID? Yeah. It was just this big, horrific confluence of events. And yeah. so you lost your support system. Now, I've heard a lot of people doing well with AA meetings over Zoom. Have you tried any of those? I have tried some of those. Is, is that those been effective for you or no? This is tough to talk about. I don't trust the recovering community. Yeah. Are you, are you comfortable saying why? You know, I went to one meeting and I'd gone to it off and on like from 2005, from the very, 2005, the very first time I came to Portland. It was a women's meeting. It was held, held up in Northwest Portland. And um, every time I went to that meeting, I just didn't feel like I quite fit in. And it never made sense to me because I had been to meetings across the country and I always felt like I fit in. I could always walk into a meeting and I felt welcome. Like this is where I belong, you know? I was sober 19 years at the beginning of the riots. Wow, that's quite an accomplishment. Thanks, it was. Um, so I would go to this meeting and I would feel like shunned, like, you know, like people really didn't want to hear what I had to share. Um, I just always felt uneasy in these meetings, but especially this one up here in Northwest. And so one day I walked in there and there was a woman sitting there, it was a lesbian meeting and there's a woman sitting there by herself. And there was a group of uh, women sitting about maybe six feet away from her. It was a lesbian and meeting they, because you identify as a lesbian as well? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it, it, you, you were expecting to feel comfortable and like you were surrounded by like-minded people. Yeah. So they were kind of ignoring her. So I sat down and, you know, I walked up to her and I introduced myself to her, told her my name told her, you know, if you got a problem drinking or you think you do, you ended up here, you're probably in the right place, you know. Um, I welcomed her and chatted for a minute. As soon as I sat down, that group of six women got up and moved completely to the other side of the room. And the woman I was talking to who had never been there before looked at me and said, did we just get shunned? Hmm. And it was like all those times that I felt like I had been shunned and that I didn't belong, it all just kind of came together. What? And it's like, why did yeah, they do that? Portlanders, some Portlanders have a really hard time accept, accepting people from other places. That's, I agree with you a million percent. You know, I'm from Colorado. And on my old Facebook timeline, it said, I'm a proud Colorado Democrat, and that offended Portlanders. That offended people. Because they felt like you couldn't be one of them unless you were a native? I think it's because it said, it didn't say I'm a proud Oregon Democrat. It said I'm a proud Colorado Democrat. 
never saw anything like what I've seen happen here. Happen. Never. So, yeah, I think that I think that was it. Yeah. Yeah, so your support system really dropped out. So at the bottom dropped out of there. Did you have a sponsor or anybody you could trust? You know what? That meeting, as a matter of fact, had been going on for two decades. It was the longest running lesbian meeting in, I believe, the United States. Wow. Couple weeks after that happened, they asked me to chair the meeting, so I did. And I went up there and I talked about how, you know, it's so important for women to hang together. You know, we have to hang together because we are all we have. You know, and the big book of AA talks about how the potential female alcoholic is going to go down a lot quicker than men. We die sooner, we die earlier than men alcoholism and our addictions I didn't know that that's that's it's a fact the really scary that's a fact it's a fact to this day with drug addiction yeah it's like the homeless women out there will die on the streets quicker than the men will die I mean maybe that's why we don't see as many of them you know whenever I see one my heart breaks especially the women Especially if they're really, really, really fucked up and out of their minds, because what I see is my girlfriend, my partner, who ended up homeless because of her addictions. Oh no! Was that in Portland? My relationship with her ended at fourteen years. Oh my gosh! Was that in Portland? This was in Colorado. Okay, it was before you moved here, and so that she was. She had always drank. She'd always been a drinker. I knew that. There was no issue with her drinking. I didn't know that she started smoking meth and shooting heroin. Oh, jeez. She kept that from me. And she just started getting more and more violent and more and more crazy. I mean, her behavior was a lot like what I see out here, only it was in my living room. You know, walking through the house and breaking every freaking light bulb in the house and then cutting her arms and walking around and then waking me up after she's down near blood to death, begging me to call for help. Oh, my gosh. So what do I do? In the middle of the night, I call for help, and the fire department tries to come in, and she's got the door barricaded. I mean, I went through crazy shit with this woman. That's so traumatic. And I left the day that she put a knife to my throat and cut me just a little bit, just enough to draw blood and get my attention, and she told me, get the fuck out of my house. Where I kill you where you stand. And I walked out. I knew at that moment I had to let her go. She had a boss that enabled her, thank God, she, she enabled her to live a few extra years. But Connie ended up on the streets in Colorado Springs, homeless, destitute, drug addicted, prostituting herself out bouncing in and out of jail, in and out of detox, in and out of the emergency room. But every time they took her to jail, took her to detox, took her to the ER, that gave her one more chance to decide, maybe this will be the time. And twice, twice, she tried. Oh, wow. She went into a long-term treatment center called Senecor. 
stayed three months. She stayed clean and sober three months. And she got scared and left. But one time after that, she went back in. She only stayed a month and she left. And within a month after leaving, they found her body on the side of I-25. So sorry. Like a piece of garbage. It must have been so, so awful for you here, to hear about. These people out here that want to tell me that I don't understand homelessness and how this affects people, that I don't think I understand what needs to be done to help them, they're full of shit. Because I know firsthand. She didn't live long enough to see gay marriage pass, or we would have been married. Yeah. I loved her with all my heart. She was only four foot nine. Just a tiny little thing. And some monster just took her life from her. You know, I felt guilty. I felt so guilty for so long. Because the cops, see, not all cops are bastards, but some cops are assholes. I agree with that. True. Because the way that they dealt with that whole situation sucked. And today I, I look at them and I think, you know, they probably thought, honestly, they probably thought, well, we're not going to have to deal with her anymore. Which is so sad and tragic. Because they had been called so many times. She had been picked up so many times. But like I said, every time they took her somewhere, it gave her a chance to sober up enough to think, well, maybe this time I should try a little bit harder. Dry out a little bit and get some perspective. Well, Susan, you've been through a lot. You are. If I can survive the death of my daughter, which for 38 years has been the hardest thing I had ever gone through, and then survive a year and a half through something harder than that was. What? Here's a question. Um, when was the last time that you were employed? came to Oregon and I worked in a little mountain town in Colorado up at a casino. Um, I did uh, a waitress and I did uh, some hostessing and I did some prep work up in the kitchen. Was this before the leg injury? No, no. Wow. You waitressed with, with that leg injury? Yeah, yeah. I used to be, yeah. How did, used to how, how did you do that? How did you do that? Well, I had, a, I had a smaller brace that I wore at that time. It was only like 
from my mid thigh down to my mid calf. I just can't it, imagine. It, it, it itself gave me enough support, but yeah, I could walk and balance a tray. Oh my goodness. You know, I had a boss in Dallas, as a matter of fact, who um, the the district manager had came in to the restaurant one morning, and I had the pleasure of waiting on him. I didn't know who he was. I had no clue who the man was. I'd never met him before. But he had dinner with, or breakfast with Steve, my manager. And when he was done, he came over and he handed me a $50 bill. And he said, this is your tip. And then he introduced himself to me and he said, I cannot believe. See, at that period, at that period of time, I'd been in a wheelchair for two years. Oh, my gosh. He said, I cannot believe that you were in a wheelchair and that your leg is as messed up as it is and that you can carry a tray and work like that. So you were wheeling around the dining hall with a tray? No, I was in a wheelchair. Oh, okay. I wasn't working in the chair. Oh, I see. But I had been in a wheelchair. I see. I was in a bus rack when I lived in Texas. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was, it happened on I-30 between um, Ferguson Road and downtown Dallas. That must have been scary. It happened during rush hour, and the bus was going an estimated 65 miles per hour. Oh, my gosh. When he ruined the pickup truck, and the there were ladder, like ladders in the back of that truck that came through the windshield of the, windshields of the bus, and... It was like, it's like slow motion. I can still see and smell everything. Hmm. The driver finally got stopped. The truck that the, the driver, the bus driver rented to pick up where the ladders came from, left the scene. I can remember seeing him just like, just take off. And then once the bus got stopped and it was like taking a breath of like relief, like, okay, we're from four, but we're okay, I think, you know. Um, boom, we got hit from behind by a semi. Oh my gosh. That had been able to slow down to about 50, I guess. So it really messed up my leg and it messed up my back. Uh, I had, a, I had a, a fracture in my spine. And was the bus accident before you fell in Colorado and... and- no, that was after. Oh my gosh. So your leg had already been permanently injured. Yeah. And then you were in this bus accident. Yeah. And then you were waiting tables. And then I was waiting. You were the successful just superstar. I've always been on disability. I've worked as much as I could. And then what was it that pushed you over the edge to the point where you just couldn't work anymore? What was that period? single room occupancy from in Portland one elevator in that building and I lived up on the top floor the seventh floor and the one and only elevator went down and was out of commission believe this or not 20 21 days oh my gosh 21 days no elevator it was unbelievable unbelievable I consulted with an attorney about that who had looked into it and, and had given some thought to like trying to sue for me, but 
she, I, I still have the letter in my lockbox from her. She, if I remember right, she said something about um, there hadn't been a precedent set or something. I'm not, I can't really remember. Like there was. wasn't a theory that she knew of that she, where she could make right. a claim. And so, and so you weren't able to work because you couldn't get out the door. And you right. couldn't take and stairs. When, yeah, and that's when some really major instability started happening with my leg. And within probably four years of that, I ended up with the brace that I wear now. And so I, you pro- I'm sure you weren't able to take the stairs. No, I was trapped up there, yeah. Oh, my God. And it how, was really difficult. How did you I get food? Dog. What? You had a dog, too? Yeah. How, did, how did the dog go out? Did you have a neighbor take them out? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, your poor yeah. dog. And then how did you get food? My neighbors. Oh. Go out and get it for me. And so once yeah. that elevator was repaired, did you ever, I mean, it sounds like that job had a fair amount of meaning for you and added meaning to your life. I mean, you had these people who recognized how good you were at it. Did you ever think about trying to become employed again? As a matter of fact, right before the COVID lockdown, right before, um, I had an interview out at Cracker Barrel. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. And then they shut down? I I wasn't going to wait tables out there. Yeah. I like to do prep in the back. And then they shut down? Is that what happened? Yeah, oh, COVID Susan. Came. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah, the COVID lockdown came, and my interview was two days after the lockdown. So what are you doing for money all this time? Well, I get Social Security disability. And so you're just surviving on, on that? Yeah, it's 850 bucks a month. That's it. And you then know? what about your housing? Is the city providing you your housing, or does the disability check have to go to rent? Well, I have Section 8. Enough, you know. Yeah. It's, it's subsidized. It's like yeah. It's like almost 200. Yeah. Which you still know, seems pay, like a lot. But I pay my cable and I pay my internet. It's a know, lot. Yeah. yeah. A lot of expenses. Yeah. I have to go to the doctor or the dentist or whatever I pay, you know. I'm my just trying to think of how we get you out of here. What about now? I mean, have you thought about contacting this Cracker Barrel again to see if you could get back into the doing prep work? No, because I don't. I don't want to get a job and have to quit. But couldn't you get a job and just save up for enough to get out? And then what's wrong with quitting? Right? I'm sure they would understand. I mean, I'm sure everybody. Well, well I'm sure that they would, but I don't want to go to the time control to be trained to do a job and and quit. Just a mere few months later. But couldn't that be your ticket out? What? Couldn't that be your ticket out into sanity? Wouldn't it be worth it? Yeah, but it wouldn't give me a good reference. You know, I'm thinking it would be better to wait till I got to Texas to get a job. You know, and another reason, too, that I don't want to get a job here, quite honestly is because I have such bad days. Mm. When I leave downtown, I can make myself leave downtown. 
but I hate coming back into downtown because I don't know what's going on downtown. And I know how crazy it is anyway. Um, and so are you saying that you're scared to leave and you're scared of what you'll come back to? Yeah, I'm scared to leave my home during the daytime. I don't like to go outside during the daytime. I get traumatized if I go out during the daytime. Yesterday, I went out to, just to have a cigarette, just to get a little bit of fresh air, get out of my apartment, see anything besides concrete and steel. I went outside, and I got across the street, and I go to sit down, and there's new graffiti everywhere. You know, and it's like, I'm just freaking tired. It's demoralizing. It's depressing. Okay, so I rant about that for a minute on Twitter. I sit down. I have a cigarette. I'm coming back inside. I go to cross the street. There's cars coming down the street. One of them stops. I wave at him. He waves at me. I know he sees me, so I go to cross the street. Well, the idiot behind him decided not to stop. I didn't see that. He decides to go around him, he's just going to pass him, right? I'm in the middle of the intersection, the middle of the intersection, and he sees me all of a sudden, and of course has to stop on a dime. That's how close he was to hitting me. What does he do? He rolls his window down at me and screams, get out of the way, you fucking old woman. Comes that close to hitting me on the pedestrian in the crosswalk with another driver stopped and he's screaming at me. That happens all the time out here. That must be so scary, especially with your disability, because you can't run. You can't get away from them fast enough. Right. Right. Was it, was it difficult for you to find Section 8 housing? I was on a list for Section 8 for like three and a half years. And what were you doing for housing before that, during the three and a half years? That's when I was living in the SRO, and I wasn't getting assistance. But my rent was $570, and my income was eight fifty. So, I mean, a huge chunk of my money was going to rent. So that must have been a real relief when you were finally able to get into Section 8. And what would you say to people who say that these people in tents are people just like you, it's just that they're not getting a disability check? I mean, do you believe that? I believe that... We're all human beings. I believe that everyone needs to be housed. I also believe, because I know, I've talked to some of these people out here in tents. They're there because that's where they choose to be. That's where they want to be. They don't want to go to a shelter. And they don't want to go to a shelter because they don't want to follow the rules. And they've told you that. And they've told me that. I was assaulted in June by two homeless men drugged up out of their minds who demanded a cigarette that I 
I didn't get, I, I didn't even have one lit. Told them I didn't have any. They started stomping on my feet. I went to turn run, and of course I can't run, but it's fight or flight. These guys are stomping on my feet. And once I was down, they started kicking me and stomping me, and they grabbed my bags and off they ran. So. Oh my gosh, they stole from you? Yeah. Oh my the gosh. That someone said, and I posted on Twitter recently, someone said something to the effect of, my empathy for the homeless like that goes the moment that my personal safety is at risk and there's nothing I can do. There's no recourse I can take. Not only was I hurt that day, I lost cash and I lost the goods that I purchased at the store. Well, and cash that you so desperately need that you're barely scraping by on. I'm also very well aware that there are people who are out here during the daytime they go to shelters at night. They get off the street at night. They keep themselves as clean as they can. I'm aware of those people too. Those people I will help. Those people I'll give a cigarette to. We're all human beings. But these guys out here were drugged up and they're higher than kites. And we're just leaving them out there in the freezing cold or in the burning up weather. It's inhumane. It is. It is inhumane. And I, I go back to what I saw when I saw Connie Holmes, my girlfriend. You know, I know the ugly side of that. You know, I know some of the ugly things that she went through because she shared them sexual assaults. I won't even name some of the other things that she went through on the streets. And so what do you think should be done? Like if you had if you had the city's ear and the governor's ear for a minute to talk about what you think should be done about these people in mentally a lot of their minds, dragged out of their minds intense that are service resistant. Do you have ideas for how to take care of them? First off, first off, and I'm not sure how, how this is to happen, but first off, they need to be taken off the streets. They need to be in my opinion, before they're given housing, we need to address what brought them to where they're at. In other words, you know, Connie, for example, there were two events in her life that I know of that she just could not work through. She couldn't forgive herself for. Things that she felt horribly guilty about. And those are the two things that she drank and used over. So there's always, there's always a tipping point. There's always something for us that, that tips us to a place where we stumble into homelessness, whether or not it's because we lost a job, whether or not it's because of divorce, whether or not it's because the death of a child or something else traumatic. Those issues need to be dealt with first because until those issues are dealt with, 
they're not going to be able to maintain clean or sober time. And what if they don't want to? What if they say, I don't, I, I'm not going to a therapist. I'm good here in my tent. They need to be mandated into um, treatment. Because, because their disease is telling them not to, right? I mean, their at mental least, illness at is... Least, at least picked up, put it somewhere for, on a 72-hour hold and evaluated. Medically, psychologically, whatever, all that stuff. Get them evaluated and see what their needs are. And then go to them and say, these are your needs. We cannot let you back out on the streets doing what you were doing. I agree 100%. So, you know, you either need to check into treatment, a 30-day program, long-term, like 18 months or longer, whatever it takes. And if you're not willing to do that, there needs to be some kind of accountability. What, what do you think the accountability should be? I mean, if you could create laws that would have potentially saved your girlfriend. What do you think, like, let's say she says, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do it. And you say, well, you're, you, you have to, you know, you're, you're mandated to the law says you have to. And she says, she says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to get better. It, well, you know, the sad, the, the sad fact is that the majority of these people won't get better. That's exactly right. Because they're not compelled to. They need to be compelled. There needs to be some accountability. You cannot expect an addict or an alcoholic to get clean and sober when they're hanging around the same people doing the same shit. Yeah, it's people, places, and things, right? Right. We got another question. This is from Beck Trekkie at B-E-C-K-T-R-E-C-K-I-E on Twitter. Friend of Truth is the handle. Do you think, this is a question for you, Susan, do you think those governing Portland were voted in fair and square, especially after they let those riots go on, hurting and destroying all that property and livelihoods? If so, are there any sane people left in Portland? Well, I guess it depends on what's the definition of sanity. You know? um. What I consider saying, I think that there are more people out there than what I'm aware of. Unfortunately, what I run into a lot is, you know, the fuck the police kind of people, you know, defund the police and all that. I don't run into a lot of people, especially Democrats like me who, you know, just really find everything appalling with what's happened. You know, I was in touch with Senator Wyden's office for months, hmm. for, from July of 2020 until probably March of last year. And she kept telling me, his representative kept telling me that these protests will stop after the election. And I believed her. Were they ever meant to stop? Did they ever try to stop them? Absolutely not. Ted, we were made a decision.
position that 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 city, meaning the downtown core, had nothing to lose. And he he, he sent that in a text to Shemansky, one of his aides. Downtown has nothing to lose. Let them write. Where did you get? Where did you see that? Um, I could send you a link later. I, I it's online. That'd be great. I'd be so interested to see that. No, That's and, and, and horrible. The governor, the governor and the mayor weren't even on speaking terms at the beginning of COVID, let alone the beginning of the riots. Did you know that? I, I didn't. Tell me about that. All I know is that, yeah, they were on speaking terms when COVID first hit. And then when the riots came, they still weren't on speaking terms. And I, I don't remember all the details about that, but I can send you a link for that, too. That'd be great. Well, what a mess. So, I don't know. The Democrats out there who are insistent on abolishing the police, who are insistent on refusing to address the victims, and I'm not talking just people like me, but I'm talking about victims of crime who have nothing to say about 90 homicides, have nothing to say about nearly the 60 homicides the year before, which broke the record then, or broke a record then. Well, I think they're just blaming it on COVID, right? I mean, they're just saying, well, it's a pandemic, and a lot, as Wheeler loves to say, and Jen Psaki loves to say, a lot of cities are suffering from this. Why in the infancy infancy of a worldwide pandemic that's already killed hundreds of thousands of people, and you're already aware, you claim you're aware that the crime is going up already, what in the hell possesses one to to fund their police? If your city's already shuttered down and you've already got crime going on and climbing, why are you going to defund your police? What would you say to people who say that police are hurting more than they help. Or that or that the or that because of systemic racism police are and uh because of systemic or intentional racism, police are are detrimental to the black community, and they should be eradicated. What would you say to that? Do you believe in police reform? 
I do believe in police reform. I do believe that. I believe that our police department needs body cams. Yeah, I agree. Well, Susan, I think this has been great, and I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you reaching out. This is a perspective that we haven't had before, and I got to tell you, my eyes have been open, and I am just so grateful to you that you were willing to be so open and vulnerable with us, and that you were willing to publicly talk about your perspective of a downtown Portland resident. I, I appreciate the opportunity. You know, um, we have a story to tell. You know, and it's, it's been horrifying. It's been a horrifying journey for us, especially the people in my building. We're all elderly. We're all disabled. I'm one of the youngest tenants in 63. Most of my neighbors are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know, and all of them, the majority of them, alone. You know? So I appreciate the chance just to get my voice out there because I've been silenced so much. No one wants to hear what I have to say. There's so much more, you know? So I don't know, maybe we can get together again and do this again. I think that'd be great. Yeah, so please, everybody, particularly those of you who are active on Twitter, please reach out and let us know if you have any other questions for Susan. We would like to have her back on, and I'm sure there are a lot of subjects that you know we just didn't get to in this session that you have questions about, particularly those of you who are curious about downtown, who don't live downtown. And for those of you who are curious about what it's like for somebody who is living literally in poverty and on the edge and yet is, is not in a tent, is not service resistant, is doing everything she can to help herself and is one of our citizens who is not heard who does not have the wealth or the connections or the ability to get in front of a megaphone and to get the media outlets to pay attention to her and, and others in her community, and who, on the other extreme, is not one of the people in, in tents that these reporters seem obsessed with, with speaking with. I mean, every other day, it seems like the Oregonian is, is interviewing somebody in a tent and they're just skipping right over your community, Susan. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I wanted to say, too, that, you know, I come across in a lot of my tweets like I'm pissed off, and that's because I am. I think I'm you curious. should be. I'm serious over how I've watched my life just shatter, you know, and how nobody wants to step up and, and be accountable and, and help me try to pick up those pieces again. But the reason I come across raging like I do half the time is because I don't, I, up until this point, I didn't want people to see the vulnerable side of me. I didn't want people to see this side. I mean, I did, but it's like that rage protected me, I felt. Yeah, it's a tender, it's a, it's a tender part, and it's scary to expose it. It's scary to expose yourself 
you've been so exposed and you've been mistreated by the system that you're trying so hard to use and hang on to for your housing and your disability check and just really your, your, your life. So I'm hoping people seeing this side of me, um, take that into account that I'm not just this old white racist bitch who came out and just decided to start harassing, you know, Joanne Hardesty or the mayor or whoever. I'm not that person. You know, I'm just a, simply a person who was living her life and minding her own business and trying to get through the COVID shit when the riots hit. And then I got stuck. You know, and anyone else in my position, or if their grandmother was in my position, they might think differently. You know? And if your grandmother was sitting in an apartment by herself and experienced what I did every night for 150 nights in a row, and I've got some videos on my Twitter of, you know, like two-minute videos of the riots, 150 nights of that for hours every night, would you really be so angry with me? Do you get a lot of pushback and harassment on Twitter? Not on Twitter, not like I do on Facebook. I seem to have a lot more control over my Twitter account, which is amazing. But I don't go looking for trouble. You know, it's like I very seldom will reply to someone who is Antifa because I don't want that kind of trouble. But once in a while, I will make a comment. So why are you, know? you getting so much harassment on Facebook? What's happening there? Because, you know, like, I'm just sick and tired of, of seeing the posts on Facebook from our city leaders doing nothing but bragging themselves up and talking about how what they're doing is making our city better when our city is falling apart. And you're seeing more but of that on Facebook. Dead. It is dead. You know, whether they want to admit it or not, the downtown area is going to take at least a decade to recover. What, what do you think is behind this whole Portland is doing great narrative? What, why is that being pushed? I believe it's being pushed because Joanne Hardesty is running for re-election. And why is it being pushed? I, I feel like it's also being pushed by just your average citizen who, I mean, mo- many, if not all, of whom do not frequent downtown. But I well, feel yeah, like it's even being pushed by them. There's a lot of people out there in Portland who don't pay attention to Portland politics. I was one of them. I was completely ignorant. I was completely ignorant until my eyes got opened. But, you know, they're busy. They're raising their families. They're trying to get through COVID. They're, they're going to work when they can. But why they're push the Portland is great narrative? Why push that narrative? Why push that Portland is great narrative? Why, why would just your average person push that? Because even, you know, you'll see on the comments in the, under the Oregonian stories, all these people saying, shut the fuck up, Portland's doing just fine, or it looked normal to me last time I was there, or it's not, you know, it's, it's a better place than Texas with some a-hole like Governor Abbott. I mean, you hear stuff like that all the time. Where, what, 
Why can't people admit that it's a shithole? Is it just too scary and sad? You know, I thought, I think so. And I think part of it too might be whether or not they realize it or not. That if they admit that, they have to admit that they voted this in. I mean, I can't believe that a lot of Portlanders are really okay with seeing record-breaking crime within our city happen like it has in the last 18 months. I just cannot believe that most people are okay with this. And I think that people are somewhat scared to say something because of riots, because of Antifa, because of what they've seen or heard. You know? And then... Like I said, they're just busy living their own lives and, you know, but the people that like, oh, Portland's fine. Well, they want it to be fine. They want everyone else to believe it's fine. So the more they gaslight, the more people that aren't really aware that might just turn news on like once a day at six o'clock and watch 30 minutes of the news and say, oh, well, the mayor's doing all he can do. I wonder if part of it is also a way to backlash against the right-wing talking point that Portland's a dumpster fire and a way to say, a way, a way to sort of own Fox News and Trump, if you will, and just sort of say the opposite of whatever they say. Like if they say Portland's a dumpster fire, we have to say we're doing great. Because if we admit it's a dumpster fire, then we're admitting to a right-wing talking point, and we can't do that. We can't, we can't give one inch... Even if it's the truth, we can't do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They can't do that. No. Well, you know, it was really refreshing. You know, I don't don't like Donald Trump. I I, I, I despise the man. I loathe the man. But the man was right when he said Portland needs help. Well, and just because... It was Ted Wheeler who screwed up when he said... No, we don't. Go the fuck home. Take your feds and go home. Right. There is a middle ground where you can hate Trump or where you can say, I didn't vote for Trump and I will never vote for Trump. And where you can also admit that Portland is a dumpster fire. Just like Trump said it was. It's only worse now. Just because you don't like Trump or you didn't vote for Trump or you're not a Republican, just because you're a Democrat who lives in Portland doesn't mean you can't tell the truth about the few things he might be right about. Right. Right. Because then you have to, then they have to admit that I screwed up voting these people in. It was, it was horrible when I hit that point. When I hit that place, that was horrible. The level of betrayal that I felt... I voted these people in and look what they're doing. That's not a good feeling. This is completely against everything I believe in, everything I've ever believed in, and they're asking me to sacrifice my integrity to support this. Yeah, and to say it's okay. And I'm not going to sacrifice my integrity. I'm going to stand up and say, no, this has never been right. It's just refreshing to talk to you and to hear some nuance and some real perspective of somebody who is really suffering under the shoddy leadership in this city. 
And I'm just so sorry. Wow. Staunch old Democrats set in their way. Why no is that? They will back it up. Why, why is that? They are just too scared to call it out. It's too scary to admit. Well, I think in the beginning, I think it's just being old, like 70s, 80s, and 90s, and being a Democrat all your life. You're not going to turn on your party. I don't know why it means that you have to turn on your party just because you're not, you're not parroting and repeating literally everything that your local political party is saying. Does, I, I, I guess they do see it as a betrayal, which is so sad. Yeah. Like as long as I live in Oregon, I will never cast another Democrat vote. Really? Really? I, I seriously doubt it. Wow. And that person better, if, if I cast a Democrat vote, that person better be. I mean, I will have checked them out thoroughly. You know what I mean? This is all Democrat leadership. So are you going to change your voting registration to Republican? Not yet. I, I don't think I can be a Republican. Yeah. What about Independent. speaking up, even, even in the face of feeling ignored and not being heard and feeling just broken and beat down, I think it's really brave of you to persist. And I thank you for that. Thank you. And thanks for coming on, Susan. I hope you come back. I will. Okay, yeah. Okay, well, take care, and I'll see you in the Twittersphere. All right, have a good one. Bye, you too. It was nice to see you.